I didn't have my mic on there. Do I need to start over for you back there? I had no idea what you were talking about. I was like, all right. Y'all with me? Everybody's heard? Okay. Your forgetfulness has led to your humiliation. Today we'll see the Lord charge his people with forgetting. Not just their clothing or a test, but their very identity. They have, through their actions, chosen to follow their hearts and love evil instead of loving what is good and submitting to God's word. And as a result, they will be without excuse before God. Israel's forgetfulness leads to her humiliation. At the same time, God is not like Israel. He does not forget. And though his people forget themselves, he will remember. God remembers his people and acts to restore their memory. We're going to learn this along with some other things today as we finish our short jog through Micah and consider the beautiful vista created for us by chapters 6 and 7. And in the past few weeks, we've learned about God's perfect holiness and God's complete justice. And today, we're going to consider together God's absolute forgiveness. That's the main idea today. If you wanted something to grab on a hold of for the rest of the week and to meditate on, it's that God is forgiving. And despite the fact that Schoolhouse Rock taught me that three is the magic number, I think that's why it's always three points. Uh, I have four today, and so you're going to have to excuse that. Uh, hopefully it just, works just as well. You're going to look at God's lawsuit in verses, chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. God's evidence in 6, 9 through 12, and 7, 1 through 6. God's judgment in 6, 13 through 16, and then God's mercy in 6, 6 through 8. And 7, 7 through 20. Probably wasn't helpful to give you those verses, but they're written down for you in your insert. God's lawsuit, God's evidence, God's judgment, and God's mercy. Let's pray and get started this morning. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. I mean, these opening verses are incredible. We find ourselves in a cosmic courtroom wherein God has subpoenaed the very creation, the mountains, to serve as his witnesses in order to corroborate his testimony against his people. The mountains are summoned, I think, because of their enduring nature. They were present when the Lord and Israel entered into covenant together at Sinai, and they serve now as silent and sober witnesses of its terms. The mountains verify the validity of the Lord's complaint against his people. For me, what came to my mind immediately was that scene in Exodus 24 wherein the people are ratifying their covenant with God. Moses reads all the commands to them, and if you remember, they respond with one voice. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. 
Subsequently, they proceed to set up an altar at the base of the mountain, offer sacrifices, gather the blood from those sacrifices. Listen to Moses read the covenant once more, respond once more with, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. And then Moses sprinkles the blood of the covenant upon the people, and it is ratified. The mountains had witnessed the promise, witnessed the people promise to obey the Lord. And now the mountains stand with God testifying against Israel that they have not done everything he has commanded. And so the Lord's charge continues. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed. What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from the Achaia grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. So the Lord begins his charge against Israel by dismissing any potential excuses the people may come up with to uh, try to, I guess, make an excuse for why they're acting the way they are. And specifically, he's saying it's not going to work to tell me it's too hard to be faithful. It's not going to work to tell me my commands are burdensome. That you grumble against me with, without reason. It's not legitimate to disobey me. Um, when, when I was younger, my mom used to assign me chores. Uh, and, and one of the ones I was assigned all the time, I've told you before, was like clean the bathroom. And my, my go-to excuse or attempt at an excuse for why I couldn't do that was always, it's too hard. Right? And I'd use that on a lot of chores. Why couldn't I mop the floor? Too hard. Uh, Couldn't I sweep the steps? Too hard. Couldn't I clean my bedroom or do the dishes? All these things were just too hard, Mom. Ask me to do things beyond my capability. Even though I was like 16 at the time, I think. (laughs) My go-to excuse was that it was just too hard. But it didn't work because my mother knew that ultimately... I was making an excuse to to not do the task simply because I didn't want to. So to hear, God is not going to accept this excuse for the people. He knows that they are simply just doing what they want to, which happens to be rebellion against his law. He knows his people are capable of obeying his word, but they don't because they're selfish. They're unconcerned with him. They think his commands are burdensome. We, we find out later on from the context. But uh, truth be told, I think that we too sometimes maybe feel like God's commands are too burdensome. It's just too hard to, to do what the Lord tells us. I, for one, am thankful for the gospel that says Jesus has kept all these commands for me so that I don't have to. I'm thankful that Christianity is a religion of done rather than do. But I'm also thankful that we get to express our affection and our love for our risen Lord by obeying his commands. I love what uh, John writes in 1 John. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Keeping God's commands, it's, it's not a burden, but a joy when our hearts are right. When we're in step with the work of God, the Holy Spirit, our lives it, are filled with affectionate obedience. At the end of the day here, that, that's what God is concerned with. 
Uh, I mean, yes, he's concerned with the specific actions of Israel, and he's going to point those out later as evidence. But he's ultimately concerned with their heart. He doesn't want to treat the symptoms of their sinfulness. He wants to treat the sinfulness itself. And that, that's where sinfulness lies, is in the heart. He's going after the heart of the matter. Or it's the heart of the people that cause them, causes them to murmur against him. It's their hearts that cause them to hate God's commands. Israel has forgotten her loyal husband and gone after other lovers. I mean, her, her sin against God is, is akin to a wife cheating on her husband. And when she's asked why, she just claims she forgot she was married in the first place. God's reminding Israel in this charge in verses 3 through 5 that it was him who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He was the one who guided them through the wilderness. He was the one that provided them with his word. He was the one that made provision for their daily needs, that blessed them when their enemies sought to curse them. He was the one that brought them into the promised land. He was the one to whom they promised their very lives. He was the one against whom they were committing adultery. God's command to remember here is an appeal for his people to return to him anew and to renew the covenant. When God calls his people to remember, he's calling them, he's calling us to participate afresh in his saving acts. Mikomiski comments, memory entails commitment to the God who performed signs and wonders in the past and so actualizes the past into the present. Such remembrance will lead one to know the saving acts of the Lord. This should make a little bit of sense to us because it's the same thing we do when we take communion together. We talked about it a little bit when we were in the 14th chapter of Mark not too long ago. And if you remember there, we talked about how stories have a way of teaching us. And we said that traditions teach. And one of the family traditions of God's people, of the church, is to have a sacred meal together. And we know it as the Lord's Supper, as communion. And and what we do in participating in the Lord's Supper together is we are reminding one another of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and his imminent return. And in those moments when we are renewing our covenant to one another, to live together and do life together and to bring glory to God together as we partake of the cup and of the bread. We are looking to the past wherein Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave and we are also looking forward to the future when he will return to make good on all the promises that he has made to us so that in communion we taste the bitterness of the cross as well as the sweetness of the resurrection that is to come. We get to participate in those saving acts. The saving acts of the Lord are actualized in our midst because traditions teach. It's the same thing here. If God's people would remember the Lord and His mighty acts, well, they would walk humbly with Him. But they don't remember the Lord. They forget and walk alone. I think we, like Israel, are prone to forgetfulness. And I would argue that we forget God's faithfulness every time we sin. That really, our sinful forgetfulness is the product of giving our priorities and attention to things other than God. I mean, would we ever forget God if we were continually ruminating on the infinite glories of the gospel 
I mean, would we ever really plunge ourselves into sin if we were obeying Paul's command in Philippians to think on that which is lovely and that which is pure? You see, when our minds gravitate to other things, when we find other things more pleasurable than the knowledge of the Holy One, then we forget. I mean, it can be simple things. It's usually good things. Uh, family can draw our attention away from the Lord, wrap up our identity and our acceptance and our well-being in our family and our spouse, our kids. It can also be silly things. Uh, I mean, I started playing Clash of Clans recently. I don't know if you've seen this. It's like a cell phone app, right? It's really dumb. Uh, but, you know, it's like, man, I'm thinking a lot about this, right? It, things that demand our attention and pull our affections away from the Lord can, can be idols and can lead us into sin. I'm not saying that all things, you're allowed to think about things other than the Lord, but hopefully your pleasure in those things would be rolling up into praise of him. It wouldn't just terminate in whatever it is you're doing. That when you're doing something as awesome as playing Clash of Clans, you're thinking, man, I'm really glad that the Lord designed this game for my enjoyment. And it's rolling up into praise. And I'm, thank, I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my spouse. This is awesome to open presents together on Christmas and to give to one another. This is great how it reminds me of Christ giving himself for my sin. So I wonder, what do you think about? Where do your thoughts go when you've got nothing else going on? Because that is where your heart is. Where is your heart? Church, it is important that we recognize this cosmic trial of Israel is not exclusive to Israel, but is ours also by extension, because we too complain against and forget our Lord. We too deserve God's judgment. God's lawsuit against the people is substantiated further by the evidence that we find down in verse 9. The voice of Yahweh calls out to the city, and it is wise to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. Are there still treasures of wickedness and the accursed short measures in the house of the wicked? Can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? For the wealthy of the city are full of violence. and Its residents speak lies. The tongues in their mouths are deceitful. Instead of doing what the Lord requires, instead of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God, Jerusalem is full of injustice, hatred, and idolatry. Judgment is coming specifically, we are told, because of how these people have acted in their places of business. There are wicked scales in deceptive ways. Basically, people are paying for less than what they're getting. They're being swindled by the business owners. And this kindles the anger of the Lord. The guilty are not allowed to excuse their sins with words such as, well, it's not personal, it's just business. The cheating or abuse of another person is always personal and always matters to God. How you treat others always matters. How you work matters. God, God's very concerned with how you go to work and how you treat people because how you do this is driven by how and who you worship. That's why we're commanded in Colossians 3.17 and then again in 23, that whatever you do in word or in deed, 
do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. I mean, Christians are to be those who do everything, whatever it is, as an act of grateful worship offered unto God for his glory. What I'm saying is, is that there should be a distinctly Jesus-y flavor to everything you do in life. I mean, the Christian whistles while she works, not because she just heard a great Adele track, but because she's happy in the Lord. And the Christian does his work enthusiastically and with excellence, not because everything is awesome or is cool when you're part of a team, but because his God is awesome. Y'all didn't catch the Lego movie reference. Taryn's going to be mad. She, she, she'll get it later and appreciate it. But because he knows God will reward his faithfulness. I wonder, is there a distinctly Jesus-y flavor to your life and work? Do you represent Jesus well in your business practices and in your work habits? All of us should use our work to enhance the lives of others. I mean, if you're a Christian, you need to answer the question, how can I do my work for the glory of God? How can I raise pigs or cattle or roast coffee or do accounting or sell cars or program computers or serve my family, or teach children, or police the community, or fix engines, or cut grass, or file paperwork, or govern, or whatever it is you do. How can I do this to the glory of God and for the good of others? Friends, do your work with excellence. Do it beautifully. Because whatever you do, you're doing unto the Lord. And you should be doing it with gospel-centered gratitude. Now, if you're sitting there thinking that you can't work like this or your business might fail, right? If I'm fully, if I show integrity, if I'm really honest, my business might fail. Or I can't give it my all or things might not go well. You should know that it is better for you to fail at business or at work than it is to sin against God. It's an old story of the church father Tertullian who lived in the second or third century. And he, he had a conversation with a man who was struggling with this. And the man said that Tertullian but I have to live. And Tertullian responded by saying, do you? You have to be upright in your business practices. And the man knows it. He knows that's how I'll honor Christ. He says, but I have to live. Tertullian says, do you? You see, obedience to God is more important than anything gained in this life. Sure, it could bring negative short-term results but it guarantees an eternal reward. Live with an eternal perspective and offer your work to God as worship. Wickedness and corruption in Jerusalem, it's not exclusive, though, to the civil leaders or the religious leaders or even the businessmen, but it permeates the entire culture. Look at the first six verses of chapter 7. Micah writes, How sad for me, for I am like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig which I crave. Godly people have vanished from the land. There is no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. 
Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, there is panic. the panic is here. Do not rely on a friend. Don't trust in a close companion. Seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother, and a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are those of his own household. Micah is lamenting here the corruption of society. The people of God live without even a hint of godliness, disloyal to him and to their neighbors and friends and families. I mean, Micah is sad here, and I think that's okay. I mean, a large portion of the Bible, it's laments. It's people being sad. Everything is not happy, clappy all the time. And Micah's sadness leads him into mournful prayer. Does wickedness spur you into prayer? Culture Micah is praying for is soaked in selfishness, bribery, and distrust. It is a culture defined by the use and abuse of others. It's marked by relational breakdown. I mean, notice the concentric circles of distrust in verses 5 through 7. One cannot serve neighbor. That would be the biggest circle. One cannot trust friend. That's a smaller circle, a little bit closer to home. One cannot even trust their family. The the woman that lies in your arms can't even trust his wife. This is total corruption. This is the fruit of sin. And it is evidence that God's people have indeed broken the covenant. There is none who is righteous. What is true of forgetful Israel is true of every culture and person that does not know God. They are unrighteous. Romans 1.18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It reminds me of Romans 3, 9 through 12. Both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. God's lawsuit against Israel applies to all those who have suppressed the truth of his rule and reign. It applies to all of us who have followed our hearts instead of obeying his word. It applies to all of us. God's lawsuit is upheld. His people are in rebellion against his kingship, and he will rightly judge them. We see the sentence in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 6. As a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied, for there will be hunger within you. What you acquire you cannot save, and what you do save I will give to the sword. You will sow but not reap, you will press olives but not anoint yourself with oil, you will tread grapes but not drink the wine." The statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. You have followed their policies. Therefore, I will make you a desolate place and the city's residents an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. God's judgment 
will expose the powerlessness of their idols and of ours, their inability to satisfy our deepest needs. The fruit of sin turns to ash in our mouths. Prosperity and security will seemingly belong to the people, but they will not be satisfied. They will be empty. They will eat and still hunger. They will gain financially, but never be able to hold on to it. They'll do the hard work of gardening and never reap a harvest or drink the wine of tread grapes. These verses remind remind me of us in so many ways. In our country here where we live is very blessed. We flourished in ways beyond many, many people's imagination. I mean, affluence has become expected. And yet, at the same time, I mean, the number of people that struggle with dissatisfaction and depression, it's never been higher. I mean, have you seen the suicide rate? It's staggering. It's high as one in ten. It's even satisfaction, security, and peace. They cannot be obtained by filling your bank account. Prosperity, comfort, and money, they do not satisfy ultimately. Idols never do. Only Jesus can give rest to what your restless heart is after. Peace with God. The people will get no satisfaction because of their sins. Because they followed the ways of the wicked kings mentioned in verse 16. And now they too will bear the same type of judgment as those kings. Faced with God's lawsuit, God's evidence, and God's judgment, the people recognize their need to have their sin forgiven. And they search for a way into God's presence. So let's go back to the courtroom in verse 6 of chapter 6. God's charge has been brought against them. We jumped ahead to look at some of God's evidence and at God's judgment, and now we're jumping back. This is the people's response to God in verse 6. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for my own sin? See, the people are confronted with their need to have their sin forgiven. And so they ask what might allow them to come into the presence of the Lord. What would allow them to come before God? And the price to enter his presence escalates with each question. The people ask, will offering calves make atonement for our sin? No. Will sacrificing thousands of rams and giving expensive oil get us into God's presence? No. Will giving our firstborn child buy our forgiveness? No. People, they're trying to bargain their way into God's presence. Which anytime bartering comes up, it reminds me when Chelsea and I uh, went to China, our friend there uh, taught us that everybody barters all the time. And so I couldn't remember all the words for different numbers, but I remembered one was Arshur Kwai. And that was, it was 20 Kwai or 20 UN or whatever their, their money is. And so, and which is pretty cheap, it's like two bucks. So everywhere I would go, they would start out at like, you know, 200 Kwai for something. And I would just calmly respond, Arshur Kwai. And then they would have these incredulous looks on their faces. That, what, are you crazy? I started at 200 and you're down here at 20. And, and eventually they would come down and they would barter with you. You could, you could negotiate your way to the right price and you could make an exchange. But see, friends, God does not barter. His holiness, it doesn't change. 
He will not lower his holiness so that we might come into his presence. He deals with evil. He deals with sin. And the price for entering his presence is beyond man's ability to pay. None of man's self-efforts or good deeds can atone for his sin. None of Israel's or our religious efforts or personal sacrifices can buy the Lord's favor. What can we do to save ourselves from our sin? Nothing. Micah again gives the people a stinging indictment in response to their suggestions in verse 8. Mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. We have all failed to meet this requirement. We have sinned. God hates sin, and he will judge it. We need forgiveness. Is it clear to you that your sins need to be forgiven? We do need forgiveness, and so we need to ask the question, how? How can we be forgiven? And while 6.8 is a stinging indictment of our sin and of Israel's, it also gives us half of the answer to that question, I think. It provides us with the picture of what, a, what godly repentance looks like. It puts on display the fruit of salvation. But at the same time, godliness in and of itself is not enough. Doing justice and loving kindness are indeed the fruit of salvation, but they do not save anyone. Godliness doesn't earn salvation, but is the grateful, worship-filled response to it. To be forgiven, we must humble ourselves and hope in God. We must repent and believe, lifting our eyes away from our navels and fixing them on Christ. I mean, this is what we see in verse 7 of chapter 7. Micah asserting his faith in God and its product, salvation. But I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And Micah continues in verse 8. He shifts to speaking as the redeemed and restored Jerusalem. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's rage until he argues my case and establishes justice for me. I love that shift. At the front end, we see God arguing against Israel, and then something's going to happen to cause him to argue for them. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Then my enemy will see, and she will be covered with shame. The one who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look at her in triumph. At that time, she will be trampled like mud in the streets. A day will come for rebuilding your walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. On that day, people will come to you from Assyria. Remember we said Assyria and Egypt are, are going to become monikers for all of Israel's enemies, and so we have an eschatological end times picture forming here. Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates River and from sea to sea and mountain to mountain, then the earth will become a wasteland because of its inhabitants and as a result of their actions. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock that is your possession, 
They live alone in a woodland surrounded by pastures. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times. I will perform miracles for them. As in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt, nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick the dust like a snake. They will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. They will tremble in the presence of Yahweh our God. They will stand in awe of you. Who is a God like you? removing iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful, loyal, steadfast love. That's what the word there in Hebrew means. It's kesed. It's this loyal, everlasting, steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers long ago. God keeps His promise. He saves His people from their enemies, Egypt and Babylon, and ultimately from sin and from death. Our God is a God who delivers. He will save His remnant. And His people are those who repent and believe, those who hope in Him. One might ask the question, though, how does God keep this promise to save his people from their sin while at the same time maintaining his perfect justice and his infinite mercy? Well, we just celebrated the how of it, friends. Christmas. God the Son, Jesus Christ, stepped out of heaven to do what we could not do, keep the covenant perfectly. He lived the life we should have lived. A life marked by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. And he purchased our forgiveness with his substitutionary death on the cross. He died the death we should have died. Jesus died alienated from God and from others in agony so that we might experience forgiveness and come before the Lord. Delivered from our sins. Our God is a God who delivers. You know, the people were wrong in chapter 6, verse 7, when they suggested they might purchase forgiveness of sin with the life of their own children who were, in fact, born into sin. But you see, God would make the people right with the death of his own sinless son. The guilty recognized that the price of freedom would be of supreme value. That's why they suggested the most valuable thing for their absolution. A human life. But the problem with a human life for a human life is that the guilty cannot take the place of the guilty. And only the infinite God can take the place of an infinite number of people. Only the innocent, divine God-man could take the wrath of God, die, and then survive to come back from the dead. Only Jesus can save us. Jesus' death on the cross shows us how sincerely God takes our sin And how severe the consequences of sin are. And at the same time, his death on the cross shows us how merciful God is. It demonstrates his delight in loving loyally, steadfastly, completely. I mean, at the cross we see the majestic holiness of God on full display. 
We see that He is the holy God who justly punishes sin and deals with evil. And He is the God who loves and saves sinners. The forgiveness of our sins is not cheap or tawdry, but costly and total. And I love the language that Micah uses. He will vanquish our iniquities. I I prefer the ESV here. I've been reading from the, the Holman. The ESV says, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. I mean, don't you love that picture? Resurrected Jesus stepping out of the tomb and crushing the head of the serpent along with your sin as he takes his first step. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. How incredible. Friends, our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven. And God has accomplished this for us. If we would put our faith in him. It's not because of anything we could ever do. Not because of who we are. Not not because of anything that we've done but only because of His holy character. Only because of His grace. And God didn't have to save any of us. The fact that He does and offers His grace to all who will turn from their sin and put their hope in Him, I mean, it's jaw-dropping. Friends, God delights in forgiving. I uh, typically listen to a good number of sermons in preparation for my own preaching and in listening this week, Tony Marita uh, shared a story that I'd like to share with you now. I'm probably not going to share it as effectively, but you can listen and do the be- we'll do the best we can with it. He says, there was a guy named uh, John, generically named. John had lived a life full of wickedness prior to knowing Jesus. But perhaps the sin that defined him most was his sexual promiscuity. Well, one day, years later, after coming to the Lord, John met a girl. And they dated for a while, and he had decided that she was the one, that he wanted to get married. But he knew that first he needed to tell her about his sinful past. And he was really worried over how she would respond. So finally, one day, he confessed his sexual past to her. And she met him with these words. John, I want you to understand something. I know my Bible well. And therefore, I know the subtlety of sin and the devices of sin working in the human heart. I know you are a thoroughly converted man, John, but I know that you still have an old nature and that you are not yet as fully instructed in the ways of God as you soon will be. The devil will do all he can to wreck your Christian life, and he will see to it that temptations of every kind will be put in your way. The day might come, please God, that it never shall. But the day may come when you will succumb to the temptation and fall into sin. Immediately, the devil will tell you that it is no use trying, that you might as well continue on in sin, and that above all, you are not to tell me because it will hurt me. But John, I want you to know that here in my arms is your home. When I married you, I married your old nature as well as your new nature. And I want you to know there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may ever come into your life. Steadfast love like this inspires holiness. People always wonder if you just preach grace, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, that nobody will ever do what God commands. To the contrary, love like this inspires holiness. God's grace leads us into grateful and worship-filled living. 
mean, church, these are God's words to you. I want you to know that here in my arms is your home. When I married you, I married all of you. And I want you to know until I return to make you perfect as I am perfect, there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may come into your life. I mean, maybe you're here and you say, but I don't feel forgiven. Friend, feelings lie. Trust not your heart, but the word of God. Cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ and be forgiven. Maybe you're the type that says, but I can't forgive myself. Friend, that's idolatry. You're not more important than God. If God says your sin is in the ocean, crushed beneath his feet, if God says your sin is done, it's done. Bury it. Brothers and sisters, God is forgiving. Taste and see that he is good. Repent and believe. Allow the astounding acts of God to lift your soul into exuberant worship of him as you wonder out loud the meaning of Micah's name. Who is like God? His book tells us what God is like. He's holy. He's just. He's merciful. He's forgiving. He's unique. And he loves us. Who is like this God? Rejoice in the uniqueness of our triune God. There's no one like him. Bathe in the glorious truth that he forgives sin. That he's forgiven your sin. Let us never forget what King Jesus has done to save us. Let us never see the cross as anything less than scandalous. Father, overwhelm us with the truth of the gospel this morning. Remind us of that first time when we understood what it was to be saved by grace through faith. What it was to come to you with open hands and say, God, I have nothing to give. Save me. What it was to know full acceptance, full pardon. What it was to have peace with you to be satisfied, to be truly happy. Father, let us remember the cross. Let us remember the promise of the future resurrection. Do not let us forget. Remind us of your saving acts as we return here week after week to celebrate the truth of the gospel, to celebrate the fact that you are a God who delivers. You deliver us and you deliver on your promises. Help us to remember as we partake of communion together. Help us to remember as we visit one another throughout the week. God, keep the gospel central in our hearts and allow us to live great, filled, worship-filled lives that delight in keeping your word because we know it is an expression of our love for you. You alone are worthy and we love you. Amen. To walk humbly with you this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.